The following is a conversation with Haley Perkins. Haley is an educator and a writer and someone who sees the subtle beauty in the world. We speak about safe spaces, critical thinking, and the purpose of education, psychedelics and therapy, and poetry. Those are notes you wrote for me. No, these are notes I wrote for you. These are notes that I wrote for grad school that I have on deck. Oh, One God. of the notes is from, is directly from a, a philosophical article called "The Complex Case of Fear and Safe Spaces," and I thought that would be good to have. <laughs> so we're gonna talk about safe spaces. Well, you said that yesterday. I can't wait to talk about safe spaces. <laughs> I don't think that didn't think that you would want to. You said that yesterday. I was like, "Fuck, we're talking about safe spaces and education." Well, we right can now. talk about okay. education because you are a master of education, and okay. hopefully, yeah, we day. can talk about education, so, and then it can go wherever it goes. And then, are you you're applying to grad school to be a PhD in education? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can talk about what education needs to be or what it should be, philosophy of education. And then we can go into safe spaces because that will go. We're going to inevitably, because I will make us go there, uh, talk about what a safe space is. Like, well, it depends on definitions, right? So if we're talking about, like, universities and what a university needs to be, it's because it's a space where people can take risks and... That, to me, is what a university should be. It's a space where people can take risks with ideas. And that, to me, is like quintessential like what a university should be. Like That's why they give uh, professors tenure, right? So they can take risks and not get fired mm-hmm. for whatever they believe. Yeah, but the question then is, when, like, who is able to take risks in any given space? Like, Not everybody is in the same position to take risks in any given space, right? Like right now you and me are talking, we have a good rapport, we know each other well. I know that if I say something and you misunderstand it, your goal is to be to understand it. So you're not going to like make these like huge intellectual assumptions. You're going to seek to understand. But I know that. I know that about you and I know our rapport. Well, that's just a a mutual respect between two people. So Yeah, but we've established that, right? Like that wasn't necessarily the case. You should go into any interaction with a mutual respect and with for the other person and what they're saying and giving them the benefit of the be- the benefit of the doubt of what they're saying that they actually mean and isn't whatever your assumption is in first hearing it. Yeah, I agree that that's true. I okay. although I don't know that like in an educational space that that's a given always. Because we because we're about learning. That's the point. We're learning. You're not there to know you're there to not know okay so we talked about earlier we were talking about um so the texas legislature in like was it 2012 yeah actually denied um actually maybe you should explain because i don't know 
so my understanding of it was that they the that the Republican Party put on their platform, like part of the Republican Party's platform on education was uh, there was a component of it that said that they don't agree with critical thinking and other kind of elements of critical thinking because it takes away from um, or it, it encourages questioning of parental authority and family values or whatever that was. And um, or, yeah, questioning of, of base values. Yeah. Which basically, well, to them means family values, Christianity. Yeah. It probably means Christianity. Let's be honest. It's Texas. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds pretty Texas to me. So questioning of base values. Got it. So when we're talking about, like, a university, where was my thought on that? That questioning of base values has to happen. So if you have a safe space where you can't question those, you know, you see where I'm going with this? Mm -hmm. So you're creating a safe space where some things can't be questioned. And that safe space, to me, just looks like it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You can't. First, if it was, like, spaces on campus, now it's the whole campus, now it's... Okay, so I have so many thoughts. Go. On that. So learning is an experience of discomfort. Agree. I think that's what learning is. Like in my experience as an educator, in my experience as a Across student. Across the board, yeah. Like, like even, that's what it is. That's how you learn is yeah. through discomfort. It's like your brain has to be pushed to a certain point where it has to change. And mm. that change is the learning. That's what learning is. And okay. so the purpose of education at its most core, I think, is to create discomfort in the mind. Cool. But there's a limit to that, right? Like if the brain is in a state of too much discomfort, learning cannot occur. There's this like, uh, there's this theory in psychology called the optimal level of arousal. York's Dodson Law. Have you heard? <laughs> I can guess, but I'm probably You're like wrong. one of my students. I use the word arousal in class and they're like, hee hee hee. I'm like, dude, that's not what arousal is. I mean, it is what arousal is, but like arousal just means your nervous system is turned on, which obviously oh, there's a sexual component. my nervous system is turned on. Oh, obviously there's a sexual component to it. But optimal level of arousal says for any given task, there's an optimal level of nervous system arousal to oh. complete that task at its at your best. And you can overwhelm that. And you can overwhelm. So like... Your optimal level of arousal to run a marathon is going to be different than your optimal level of arousal to take a standardized test, right? Like, if you go into that standardized test too nervous, like with your nervous system too stimulated, you're not going to perform as well as if it was, like, at whatever the optimal level of arousal is for you as an individual. And that's, like, very specific to the individual, right? Okay. And if you're under aroused, you're also not going to perform too well, right? You, you like overslept you roll into your standardized test you're like half asleep you're not you're not going to be able to perform right so when it comes to learning that's that's true too like we our brains need this optimal level of arousal in order to learn which is why teachers want to make things engaging and blah 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 right? can that level of arousal change by population and can it change over time what do you mean can some population or like collection of individuals have a different um like sweet spot of whatever arousal whatever um like their education goldilocks zone of arousal totally it's it's totally dependent on the person so for example okay so yes Yes. i think is the is my answer but i'm not like a you're walking right into my trap okay 
<laughs> Let me focus on a population that's not uh, controversial whatsoever. You know what introverts and extroverts. Cool. Okay. What we know about introverts and extroverts is that people who are who take personality tests and tend to be more on the extroverted side of the spectrum. Not me. Have not me either. Have um, lower base brain activity. So their brains are under aroused. Whereas introverts have more brain activity going on base level. So they're over, they're more aroused. They're more stimulated. Um, And so extroverts seek that arousal externally, right? Through social contact um, and like being out in the world. That's what is stimulating to the brain, right? And so the optimal level of arousal for introverts and extroverts is obviously different, right? Like you and me go out, we hang out with people and we're like, I'm so overstimulated right now. I'm having fun. But like when I go home, phew, I'm exhausted. And then I fade to the back of the party and find the wall. Yeah. And and you you just leave without saying goodbye. And you're like, (laughs) (laughs) you just disappear. Goodbye. That's my so, entire college experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's like in my friend group. Now everyone knows I'm like the first person, to, the last person to arrive and the first person to leave. <laughs> so before I, <laughs> next time I leave, I'm going to be like, I'm over aroused. But <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right, dude. <laughs> I'm over aroused. I must right, go. See you later. So yeah. So yeah. So in those two populations of people, and we all fall somewhere on that spectrum of introversion an extroversion, right? Like no one's like just an introvert or just an extrovert. Like that's a that's a scale. Um, then that optimal level of arousal is going to be different. Okay, so say so. I told you about that book. Um, God damn it! I wish I brought it. What's it called? I have a bad memory today. Your optimal level of arousal might be too high. <laughs> Stop. You can't think clearly. It's low-hanging fruit for comedy. I'm sorry. I'm not going to make any more arousal jokes. <laughs> um, so it would, uh, the cod only had the American mind. That's what I was talking about. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And I always bring it up because I think it's um, so that so that's where I'm going is say that level of arousal with a given population. Say it's like um, students, kids, younger people than us. That level of arousal, uh, that like Goldilocks zone, is going to be a little bit lower. So where they are learning. Or their comfort zone for being pushed is going to be quite a bit lower, and it seems like it's quite a bit lower. Like whatever is going into, and I don't think it's psychological. I think it's well, it's not like base level psychology. It's uh, more like cultural. So they're like, what's going to push them past the edge? And and well, I guess I use the word offend or trigger or make them want to shut down an idea is is a lot lower than like say me or maybe like our parents or something. But then at the yeah. same time you can get like older people who don't want to do the same thing. They'll I mean old Texas Republicans we were just talking about, they don't want to be pushed past their comfort zone on like say um their base beliefs of like Christianity. That's like the orthodoxy what I was talking about. They don't want to be pushed past that. Well I see the same thing in like like university kids. They don't want to be pushed past like we're at a place where everything's supposed to be questioned, but not this thing. We can't question this thing. And, and then, you know, screaming, fighting, name-calling. So that's why I compare it to, like, like conservatives and Christianity, because it literally, like, it brings me back to when I was, like, 11 or 12, and I'm, like, telling people I'm an atheist um, because I was, I'm just a, I'm an ass, and I, I want to, like, I'll just say it because I'm 11. Or, like, what do I know? Mm-hmm. And then I get, like... 
like relatives like messaging me on my Facebook asking me like to find God and like like crying over the phone like whoa what is happening to me right now so that that's why that this situation that's happening now reminds me of that because it's like that base orthodoxy questioning and then people are like whoa, whoa, whoa you, you're not supposed to do that um, but anyway I'm getting off topic okay so first you started talking about like the coddling of the American mind right yeah, this so like coddling thing okay so I have thoughts on that oh should we explain what it is it's well, it's a it's a book, and it's it's uh, uh, two psychologists wrote it. It's uh, Jonathan Haidt and someone else, um, and basically it goes over a lot of safety measures we took in the nineties, eighties, nineties. We kind of like overprotected people, and that led to um, excuse me. We started overprotecting our kids based on like a small sample size of things that were going wrong, and. Um, it had the opposite effect. We're trying to protect our kids and it made them like weaker, I guess is not a good way to put it, but that's the word I'll use. <laughs> okay. So I haven't read the book and I don't know, so I can't really like say whether I it's agree like, or not or even like speak to it that much, so like but a, I get the concept. Yeah. Like a good example is a couple kids had peanut allergies and might've died for it. The chance of them dying is very low. The chance of the kid having peanut allergy is low. So no peanuts in class or school at all whatsoever now but then you have a really low level of uh exposure to it so now we have more kids with peanut allergies Mm -hmm. so it we had a good intent on a problem but it blew up on our face because we um overcorrected we overcorrected and now we have a worse problem fun fact on the peanut allergies is if you give your baby peanut they have a like way lower probability of having a peanut allergy like it's like exposure right like if exactly. you let your kid exposure eat therapy. dirt or like whatever perfect perfect example <laughs> exposure therapy so expose people to yeah okay so can, okay so can i dig into this please so Go. the coddling of the american mind as a concept it's hard to say so it seems to me like and like I want to bring this back to safe spaces eventually, but it seems to me like there are two things going on. First of all, I think when we're talking shit about young people these days, as <laughs> as as one likes Isn't to that do, what older people are supposed to do. We need to acknowledge the truth of the fact that young people are so overstimulated compared mm. to us and the generations above, above okay, my, us. My point isn't to blame the young people. You don't blame no, the people. No, but I think that that's like a, a truth that needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, especially when it comes to the coddling of the, of the of the of children and like the idea of safe spaces and talking about optimal arousal and overstimulation yeah. because our young people these days are beyond stimulated to to a capacity that we couldn't understand like the 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 child's mind is developing right and there's like so many things that it needs to do and it's overstimulated it doesn't get the rest in order to like do a lot of the things that it needs to do that our brains probably could have and in different ways so i think that that should be acknowledged as like probably and i deal with a lot of young people my sense is, and I have, no, I don't know, like what the what the research said, like how the research backs this up, backs this up, but my sense is that there's a lot more baseline stimulation going on um, overall with young people, and so. So we have high rates of anxiety, depression, exactly. blah, blah blah blah. Yeah, I mean little... that's the correlation, right? So when we're talking about safe spaces, that population has more stimulation as a baseline overall. 
right? So these are higher, ang- we are functioning at like a little bit of a higher level of anxiety, stimulation, etc. All that, all that comes with like technology, screens, internet, interconnectedness, blah, blah, blah. The other thing that I think that you were talking about more is like, are we giving our kids the tools to deal with the realities of the world? Coping skills. Like, are we actually enabling young people with coping mechanisms? Mm. And like, that's one of the things that I talk to parents about a lot. It's like the purpose of me as an educator for your child isn't to save them from the discomfort of the world. It's an, it's to enable them with tools for how to face the discomfort so of the you're world. Raising, yeah, you're right. Ra- that's why I told my sister this about like my nephew all the time is you're not, you're not raising a child. You're raising what's going to be an adult one day. Yeah. So I'm not going to avoid things that might make your child feel uncomfortable in the classroom. And I'm not going to, you know, sh- uh, sh- uh, filter or shelter um, what I'm saying. Obviously it needs to be age appropriate. And that's like something that you have to take into consideration as an mm. educator. Um, I'm going to make your kid feel uncomfortable, you know, and they're going to come home from school probably and say like, this happened in school and it was uncomfortable. And it made me feel weird. Like, and you know, talking about the Holocaust or, you know, talking about, um, yeah, like various events that we're looking at images and we're hearing stories and we feel terrible, right? There's this horrible feeling. But that goes back to the safe spaces. Like you need to be, children need to, children, teenagers, whoever, adolescents need to be in an environment where they can, those things can land, right? Where they're not so uncomfortable by whatever they're learning that it doesn't actually get saturated into the We're brain. We're talking about universities and adults. We are? Aren't we? I was talking about my the population of kids uh, that I know. Well, I don't care if there's safe spaces in high school. I can care less. I'm what? I mean, oh, I'm so you're about, good with safe spaces in high school, but you're not good with safe spaces in adult I've education? never seen a safe space in high school. I don't know. I haven't been to high school in 12 years, 13 okay, years. Okay, okay. I'm talking about, like, so, I mean, well, it depends what's the point of a high school and what's the point of a university. They have different, uh, they have different aims, they have different projections, they have different Do qualifications. They? Yeah, university is where research is done and where... And education at high school is where like, Not base level education for under- undergraduates. Yes, but okay. So for me, maybe we can talk about. We're going to get into epistemics, but um, uh, if you're an undergraduate at a university, there's some things that if you didn't learn, then you failed. You failed at being a student in your university, or your teachers failed you in teaching it. But a lot of it is it's like patchwork, right? Because you go to a lot of classes, you go to a lot of teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, but like base critical thinking skills, being able to hear things that you don't like and learn from it is... Is that is, critical thinking? Yeah. That's the second epistemic if we want to go over it. But um, putting yourself in someone else's shoes, hearing something, mm-hmm. hearing an argument you don't like, mm-hmm. and being able to put that argument in your mind as if it's your... It, that idea in your mind as if it's your own and spinning it back out at somebody else. So like, say if you're pro abortion, you should be able to tell me the argument for to uh, like anti-abortion. people. Yeah. Not a lot of people can do that. It's really hard. It's a skill that you develop. It's not intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something you need to practice. And that's something you should learn as an undergraduate in a university. You should learn that. Side note, but there's a lot of research in psychology that supports the idea that critical thinking is not a skill you can learn. Say more. 
that that it's not necessarily like that critical thinking and what you're talking about isn't actually a skill that can be taught. I don't understand. Like, this was in that podcast that you sent me. They were talking about it too. Like, can you actually teach critical thinking or not? I think you can teach people. And the two get the two. I don't remember who was talking, but they were. They had different perspectives on it. Mm, That you can only model it, and people can only. But it's like exposure to me. It's like exposure therapy. Like I know when someone says that something I disagree with, my like child brain is like, "Fuck that person. I don't like that idea." Yeah. But my. I've train trained yourself. myself over yeah. time to educate and be like, hey, that thing, it's not good. I'm not going to engage with that. But that's more just like metacognitive awareness. I think that's different so we need than to critical teach thinking. Metacognitive, <laughs> <laughs> metacognitive awareness. You made me say a word with more than three syllables. <laughs> or a hyphen. Um, I yeah. Mean, I are mean, we going to just relabel it? That to me is critical thinking, right? I don't know because that's something that we... It's a part of it. <laughs> I would if I were to teach a critical okay. thinking class, which I one day probably will again. Um, I would teach that as critical thinking. I mean, yeah, I'm okay with putting med- metacognition under the umbrella of critical thinking. I guess that's part of like a first person or a second person yeah. epistemic, like okay, noticing so you're my saying, mind and knowing your mind. If you're saying, if you're defining critical thinking as the three epistemic orders, or however you phrase that, we'll then go over it. sure, then yes, yes, I will. So, okay. okay, well, let's, well, let's define... No, but can we finish talking about safe spaces? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to finish talking about safe Okay, so I highly recommend reading Barbara Stengel's article. I will send it to you. The Complex Case of Fear in Safe Space. I'll link it. Um, the Complex Fear of Safe Space. Because she is... Well, that's going to bring me out of my... Over my arousal zone, I won't be able to read it. (laughs) She is a philosopher of education, but she comes from a pragmatic perspective. So she's like, how does this actually work? Continental philosophy. Like, how does this actually work in real life? Okay. Right? Like, let's... We can be in la-la land with theory all we want, but, like, let's talk about, like, how to apply this in the real world, right? So when... She talks about that. One of the things that she says is like the call for safe spaces, right? There's a call for safe spaces, mm-hmm. right? Somebody out there has said we need safe spaces, right? Implies that someone acknowledges that students of a certain kind are not feeling safe mm-hmm. for whatever reason, right? Maybe Good. there's harassment. Maybe there's suffering. Maybe there's That's like different. actually yeah. something going on, okay, so right? That, yeah. So we uh, discrimination. Like define. if you want to talk about like um, the very beginnings of like desegregation, right? Like Ruby Bridges going into that school, not a safe space for learning, not at all, no. right? Um, so there are, I think there are levels. That's funny because safe spaces are now bringing back segregation in schools. Sorry, that's my dig. With say. affinity groups. You're talking about like with affinity groups? I'm talking about with like, what was it, New York State University and like some other university in Colorado yeah. might be more. Bring back like segregated housing for students who don't feel yeah. safe. Yeah. So her article gets into that too. So Ooh. I highly recommend. <clears throat> so what she says is that students have to feel safe enough, but that doesn't, off, off, that doesn't always mean comfort. So I think that like you have to differentiate safety versus comfort Mm. so you and i i feel safe with you does that mean that i'm always comfortable with our conversations no (laughs) not at all right like we have conversations and we go into like 
way out of my comfort zone in terms of what we're talking about. Either it makes me feel uncomfortable because of the way that we're thinking and I'm like, I've been taught to not think that way. Or maybe it makes me feel uncomfortable because I literally don't know and you're teaching me something. Or maybe it makes me feel uncomfortable because I don't feel like you're hearing what I'm what I'm actually saying. No. Right. Like there are different <laughs> there are different levels of discomfort. And so her argument is that discomfort is actually essential to learning, which goes back to my original point. Like mm -hmm. learning is discomfort. The mm -hmm. process of learning is experiencing discomfort. So, so I think that like you get hung up on the comfort part, right? Like, I'm uncomfortable with this conversation. This makes me uncomfortable. I'm experiencing discomfort. Like, screw that. Like, good. Yeah, exactly. You Otherwise, know, like, you're just teaching orthodoxy. Like, you could be in a church and you're literally just hearing a preacher. Yeah. Yes, 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 everything. Yeah. So, like, in my experience with education with my students, like, I want them to experience discomfort hmm. to a certain level. But you can't push it to the point where the learning shuts down. Right. Where that kid can't doesn't trust you or that adult yeah. even because I don't think that brains are that different kids and adult when it comes to how we learn. I think that we need to feel as though we are spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, physically safe somewhere in order to be vulnerable enough to feel the discomfort of learning. Yeah, you can even parallel with um, like physical training. You need to be uncomfortable to get better, but not so uncomfortable that your muscles are tearing. Enough. Yeah, but like. Think about our how we're socialized. Like, we don't want to show that we're just in discomfort. Mm. You know, like, I had a teacher come to me just the other day, like an older teacher. I mean, not he's not old, but he's in his 50s. And he came into my classroom the other day asking for like, help on something with the Google Drive, right? Like, just some basic thing. And he was like, I don't know how to do this thing. Can you show me? And I was like, you don't know how to do that thing? It was something very basic. Like, how do I create a spreadsheet? Yeah, no. I, I very patiently showed him, like, the good teacher that I am. <clears throat> and he looked at me. He said, you know, the problem with asking for help is you have to admit what you don't know. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, that's what our that's why our, our students sometimes don't ask for help because they don't want to admit what they don't know, right? That's the fear of that discomfort part of learning, right? I'm uncomfortable because I don't know something or I need to admit something. That's vulnerability. Like, in order to face the discomfort that precedes learning, you also must be willing. Classes. You what? Also taught in critical thinking classes. Yeah. Three most important words. What? I don't know. Oh, yeah. So you must be willing to be vulnerable. And you will and people are not willing to feel, feel to be vulnerable in places mm. where they're unsafe. Mm. And that safety component, it's like impossible to define what that is. Right? That's why this conversation around safe spaces is, I think, so hard. Because it's multivariant and we're not always so, talking about the same thing. Yeah, and it's intersectional, right? It's like there's so many components to that. There's gender, there's sexuality, there's race, there's age, there's socioeconomic background, there's levels of education. Like there's ev literally every social factor is involved in like what it means for somebody to feel safe in a given space, right? So you and I might walk into a room somewhere and depending on what the room is, it's like an educational space. I might feel immediately like, all right, I'm good here. I'm comfortable. And you might be like, nope, I am out of my comfort zone. I'm not going to talk, right? I'm just going to listen and sit back. Mm. That, that's just how we are. That's our appraisal of the situation. And one of us may feel more or less safe based on who we are, our identities, our background, who else is there, all of those things. So like, that's the complex kind of, I think, component to safe spaces is it's not really a universal, like you can't just like apply a universal rule to it, you know? 
and and the those students who need the safe spaces the most are the least likely to ask for them because of the inherent unsafety or vulner or lack of vulnerability hmm. or fear of vulnerability or retribution right like maybe i'm this is such a hypothetical situation but this is like something that i could talk about maybe i'm the only woman in a room full of men in like a sporting context like an athletic context and i feel like it's pretty clear you know that there's like a there's a i'm the only one and i keep trying to contribute and maybe my ideas aren't getting heard or maybe someone's rephrasing what i'm saying or whatever um i might not feel as comfortable really digging into whatever the conversation needs to be because i don't feel like i'm having that that respect conversation that we had before or whatever right i'm who i am so that might not affect me as much but if i had other like but your demand would never be to like okay well this because of that this thing shouldn't be able to happen this like conglomeration of people talking about this such and such subject can't happen because it makes me uncomfortable Mm. what i'm talking about is like a free market of ideas always yeah i mean it gets really complicated because what if we're talking about women in sports right and we're in an echo chamber of a bunch of people i'm just being hypothetical here but we're in an echo chamber of a bunch of people who have one perspective and i'm the only one offering the other perspective and it's not a useful conversation then what are we doing other than just like reinforcing stereotypes that 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 group already has so the the answer would be better ideas not no ideas is what i mean say that again the answer would be if you want more perspectives heard that's just more ideas better ideas more yeah input yeah i mean that's the call for diversity let's not let's (laughs) shut it down or, hmm. I mean, here's the the net net is that's that- just to me it's just more ideas. It's just a free market of ideas, and of course, just like just like a marketplace, you can have a monopoly in in a particular market. That's what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So, where's the top down structure that's going to control that monopoly? Because that's what top down structures are for. If we're talking about a market, that would be like, what's the government? Um, function or mechanism that's going to step in and disrupt the monopoly so that there's a better marketplace for that particular set of ideas. Yes. I just made That's that That's what a safe space does. <laughs> okay. Is it disrupts the monopoly on whoever has, whoever is like sucking up the vacuum of that I could space. get I could get down with that definition of safe space. Because here's the truth, the net nets. And, and this is what Stengel says. She says, safe space is not educative. If we are fully comfortable and safe, that education is unsafe to some degree because it creates discomfort. Mm -hmm. Right? So, but this is where we get in the conversation of like affinity groups or, 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 um, I'm, I just, when you were talking, I thought of, um, of, um, Alice Walker's poem, um, womanism or womanist. Okay. So she has this poem called womanist she's um basically defining this word womanism which is different than feminism to her 
Um, and so one of the things she says about this is committed to survival and wholeness of entire people, male and female. Not a separatist, except periodically for health. So she's saying a womanist is somebody who's committing to who's committed to the survival and wholeness of entire people. However you want to interpret that, right? But this kind of like sounds humanist. Yeah, it does. It does. It does sound humanist. Um, but the rest of this is like a poem that has to do with gender and sexuality and race. Um, but then she says, not a separatist. So meaning somebody who wants to bring people together, right? I don't want to separate us. But she does make a distinction, except periodically for health. And I think that's where we get into these like affinity groups and the need for safe spaces that are separate. Because at some time, at points, there is that need to have separation periodically for health, right? Because you know as well as I know, like there are certain groups that we're in where we can just let all of our guards down, Mm. you know? And that I think is important. Not every single education, educative space is going to be that. That's how I want my immediate, my friends groups, that's how I want them to function. That's how I... Where you I, can let all your guards down. I push that all the time. Like you can say, like with my immediate friends, I always say all the time, and I've been pushing this for years, is you can say whatever you want to me um, as long as it's funny because funny within my friend group is paramount. That's that's yeah. the axiom, right? Right. So you can say whatever you want to me as long as it's funny. Even even in tragedy, I don't care. Yeah. If something happens and like somebody dies near me and you Think of something really funny to say to me. Go ahead. I don't care as long as it's funny. But that's a friend group. Exactly. That's not a, a, a learning space. Mm. I mean, friend groups are learning spaces, yeah. right? Like for sure they can be. Yeah, of course. But that's not that's not your stereotypical learning space. Mm. So like best case scenario, your learning space oh. is a space in which all of the people there but you that can is, call so your it's friends. a learning space and it is a learning space where every single one of them gives me the respect that I have their best interests in, uh, in mind. Mm-hmm. And they give me the respect, the mutual respect that I give them of, uh, of um, res- uh, respecting their intention of what they say. Right. Yeah, I know you're big on that. But they know <laughs> you. Like, they know you. Yeah, but right? it, like, it doesn't matter. You and I had a tiff about that the other day. And I was like, dude, relax. I know you. I know your intention and your come from is a certain way. Like, but that's because I know you. If I was just, if you and I were just in a learning space talking about whatever and I didn't know you very well and you were just some rando dude across the room raising your hand saying some, saying some crazy shit, I'd be like, what the hell? Yeah, but you're, you're the baseline of how you interact with other people should start there at that respect. Until that, until I you mean, learn to take it away. Should sure, but when you've lived in a when you live in a world where the way that people interact with you isn't re- representative of that baseline, how Twitter can you? Much. How can you? What? You're on Twitter too much. I'm not even on Twitter. You're on Twitter. <laughs> you you send me all the Twitter eye rolls of the day. I'm not even on Twitter. Okay, fine. But let me just put. You're not gonna want to like. Okay, let me just put, let me just give you make an example. Make me uncomfortable. No, it's not going to make you uncomfortable, but you're going to be like, oh my God, this, this like example. Um, you're assuming. Yeah, I am. Um, let's say you uh, grow up in a world in which you feel people's eyes on you often in ways that you don't want. 
Like they're staring at my breasts? Yes. <laughs> that you have been in crowded places where people have like reached and touched parts of your body that you didn't want them to reach and touch. Where do you hang out? Subways, bars, any crowded location or where you're stuck in line somewhere and you can't really move. That's like happened to me a number of times. And like mm. that's a common occurrence for women, right? Okay. Just being grabbed at whatever. Um, you know, people like looking, you know, um, actually this happened to me. This has happened to me multiple times in my life too, where like I was on the subway in New York and this guy was just like looking at me jerking off. And I was like, <laughs> You're gonna really? <laughs> this is happening right now. So my body, right? So the, my experience in my body is an experience of being a human being, but also kind of feeling like I wouldn't say prey, but I would not say prey, right? Like there's this fixation of like sexuality that's been placed on me, not because of me, but because of the people around me, right? Mm. Okay, so now I'm in a room in an educational space with mixed genders, but there's a couple guys who are raising their hands saying some things that might have like potentially misogynistic undertones. Let's say it's you and I don't know you, right? But you're asking a question because you want clarity, but there could be like, I could interpret it as like having potentially misogynistic undertones. So yes, in an ideal world, I would give you the benefit of the doubt and say mutual respect, what you're calling for, right? Mm. The intention of this person isn't negative, blah, blah, blah. But my entire 32 years of living, no, okay, not 32 years, since I was like probably 11 or 12, like not like a little child. Mm. So that whole, my whole existence has been one of feeling like the attention that I'm getting or the, not the attention that I'm getting, but the, yeah, that like maybe sometimes the come from from men isn't always where we want it to be. So yeah, in an ideal world, I think that we do look at it, we do approach learning and education and, and discourse from a place of best intentions. But I think that when we live in a world where that's not our experience in the everyday life, and that's just my own experience as a white woman, right? Like people from all, all different identities are going to experience different things based on where they live, where they come from, culture, all of the religion, all that stuff, right? So we're going to have different experiences. So our, 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 experiences color our thinking i think okay dewey says that too where does he say that you act your way into what you think okay and that like the only way we can think is through experience that's it right the only way that we can possibly think is through what we've experienced okay whether we've experienced or not it actually or not does that make sense? Yeah. But I can't think of another way that if you might be wrong about that, that you could possibly learn that lesson without pushing past that comfort zone. What do you mean? Or say that again. So say you're in a room with those same guys and they actually do mean well. And it's like maybe it's yeah. an academic setting. Um, and unless, I think that they, that most of the time, yes, that is the case. Unless they you have actually that discussion with well. them and you allow them to say that. Yeah then you'll never know. Yeah. So again, you have to allow them to say it. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
So this is, I mean, this is a debate that's happening right now over, it's like a free speech over safetyism kind of thing. Like at what we can and can't say. And then there's the free speech over. Oh, I was just looking at an old Guardian article the other day that said political correctness is not, does not infringe on free speech. It actually encourages it. Um, I would love to read that because it seems like the opposite. Well, it depends what we're talking about. Again, definitions. Because, okay, <laughs> we can get into so many different conversations right now. That's fine. So political correctness is a term that I think has gotten a bad rap. I like to reframe it as socially responsible language. So that probably be better. So because political correctness kind of has this this feeling of it's just like what people want to hear at the time because it's like the word political right like politicians well, like they don't actually say anything authentic say, exactly they yeah they just say authentic. what they think you want to hear so that you get their vote right like it's very much of a sham yeah it's the warm milk of conversation yeah and political correctness is just like i'm saying this because it's because of feelings hmm. right and like feelings matter otherwise we wouldn't have them first of all but second of all I think that if we reframe it into socially responsible language, then we're taking, we're just taking ownership of like, how am I, how do I show up in a space in a socially responsible way in which I care about my fellow human and the community that we share together? One of, of like community and like tribalism in the best sense of the word. You don't have to, but that limits or lowers the chance that the other people around you are going to listen to. Exactly. So you don't have to. This is something you. you it's can, like a social contract. You, you don't totally have to do don't have to care what other people think or care you can about. Say whatever the, you want. You can joke about it. You can. You don't have to care about the feelings, the thoughts, anything about other people. But if you don't care about those things and are low on the agreeableness scale, then it's <laughs> unlikely that you are going to be well liked, well respected, or listened to in any in any community. Sure. So socially responsible language is for the benefit of the speaker and the listener. Because what it does is it makes it so that you are taking into account the people you're talking to and how your words might, the, the, the meaning that your words might carry. Okay. So why does that promote free speech? Because what I just said was socially responsible. And so it opens the conversation for more people to enter the conversation with me. Whereas if I don't use socially responsible language and I just use language that I know can be inflammatory or trigger feelings or whatever, then those things are going to happen. It's going to be inflammatory. It's going to trigger feelings. And what's not going to happen is, 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 yeah, is discourse. So is it like opens up the discourse. marketplace of ideas instead of just shutting it down. Because you can have a marketplace of ideas where everyone just says what they want, but Really, it's just inflammatory and everybody shuts down and doesn't actually speak. So it really just shuts down that marketplace. I mean, if you think about the origin of free speech, what's the what's the what's the like true energy behind that call? Right. That like that amend that um that bill of rights that we have. Right. The free the, fr- it's our, criticism our right of the to free speech. T- criticism of tyranny. People over with power over you. That's one of them. Mm-hmm. The other one is. Yeah. I mean, that's the big one. But the real I think energy behind that is also to engage in productive dialogue yeah right because we can criticize the government all we want but unless we actually engage in productive dialogue around that critique then we're just stuck with a government we don't like that we're talking shit about all the time which is kind of where we are right now Mm. because we're not actually like engaging in productive dialogue with one another very much in this country we're just saying what we want to say to people in the who name of free speech, to people who already agree with us, hmm. 
And we're not being socially responsible with our language in many cases because what we say is going to trigger the opposite group to just disagree more and and create more division. Critical thinking. The answer is critical thinking. (laughs) Can we go over epistemics now? Yes. Yes. Um, I only say that. So I call them epistemics because... Somebody By the way, you did a great me. job with the um, socially responsible language conversation. It went a lot better than I thought it would. <laughs> you, I was expecting you have this way more pushback. of me in your mind that I don't think is true. <laughs> okay. I'm not. We're not that different. Ugh, I'm just a little more uh, disagreeable. That is true. <laughs> and you practice socially responsible language a lot less than me, so I thought there was oh. going to be a lot more pushback. Fine. Fine, fine, fine. I'll give you that one. Um, so it, uh, the epistemics is not my language. That's actually Daniel Schmachtenberger. I don't know. I'll just give him credit for it. But it's something I'm thinking it? about. I don't know. Oh, okay. I, I honestly can't remember his name. But he's way smarter than I am. Uh, but he put that term in my head. And it's what, well, what epistemics means. Episteme is uh, Latin for uh, knowledge or to know. So the epistemics would be ways of knowing, but really what it is is just critical thinking. And he and he um, he put this like way to teach critical thinking in my mind, or maybe it's basically a categorization of critical thinking. And he separates it into three categories, and uh, the third three categories are as such: um, third person. So it's first person, second person, and third person. Third person would be how do you make sense of the world? Does your sense making of the world around you make sense? Um, does it is it logical? Does it uh, do they um, do the different mechanisms contradict each other? So we would call this your worldview. Worldview and yeah, um, exactly. So and we'll come back to that. So the second one is and I like to go down because I think it's easier. The second one is um, how do you uh, make sense of the uh, the person next to you or the person you're talking to? How do you um, relate to their mind? Mm-hmm. And then we were just talking about this exactly. the other day. Yeah. Uh, and then the first person would be rec- first person epistemics would be recognition of your own biases. Um, first. N- yeah, and um, uh, so that's like existentialism and stuff like that. Knowing what you are, how your mind works, the flaws. Yeah, and metacognition. Them. Metacognition, exactly. Um, so uh, let's. So third person, if I'm getting this correct is how you see the world. Second person is how you see others. And first person is how you see yourself. Yes. Not just see, but everything. Understand. Ways of knowing. Ways of knowing the world. Exactly. Ways of knowing others and And ways of knowing the further you go down into the epistemics from third, second to first, the harder it is to actually do. Right. With some overlap. I think first and second is pretty hard. It's it's actually really hard to know yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. It's pretty hard to know other people, too. It's kind of like there's some overlap there. But we can start in the, the third. And I've been thinking about, like, okay, so how would you teach people, like, proper uh, mechanisms of truth-telling or finding in the world? Well, you would teach them, um, like, logic or philosophy of logic. Philosophy in general, What like, what is that? Um, philosophy of mathematics. Um, um, let's see philosophy of science definitely like a lot of people like science can for people can turn into a religion of sorts Mm -hmm. like oh it's because of science like okay well what does that mean though like how do you know how it works do you know how evolution works because you cite it a lot so you're kind of talking about 
dis- uh, disciplinary thinking, learning how to think like a scientist, like learning what that actually mm. is, learning yeah. to think like a historian, learning yes. what that actually is. Yes. Learning to think like a historian means you, I understand how to take perspectives. I understand how to put things into historical context. I understand how to source how yes. to look at the validity of my sources. Scientific thinking is I understand how to ask questions. I understand how to test a, hypo- a, hy- a hypothesis. I understand how to interpret data. Yeah, and even and you can go even further than that as to why do we trust science? Um, what what is the literal uh, logical formulation um, of how science is done? Like, do you know what falsification is and mm-hmm. why we use it? Mm-hmm. Well, falsification is when you have a theory, you don't try to um, just prove it right. All right. the time, you actually do the opposite mm-hmm. because that's that's um, it's not perfect, but it uh, it's a way to come to a greater truth over time. Yeah. So you try to prove it wrong, or that's what everybody else does in science. So you have a theory. Yeah, like can I replicate the results or not? So yeah, exactly. So and if all, everyone's trying to prove it wrong and they can't, then it becomes um, you know theory and then eventually fact. But it always has that ability to to be proven wrong. Um, so there's always that um, that level of falsification out, uh, under it. Or over its head. Um, and then we can move into... Uh, so... Go ahead. For third-person epistemics, are you saying then the way that we understand the world, our worldview is only based, can only be taught based on things within, that fall within the realm of academia? No. Because I feel like religion and spirituality is mm. huge. Like, the human does not exist without a spiritual component in the society we live in. Like that's huge. So what about th- so you're saying what about things that can't be measured? Yeah, like I'm thinking spirituality. I'm thinking emotion. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking sexuality. Mm-hmm. Those are harder things to. But they still fall under uh, uh, logical formulation. Like they can't contradict one another, and they can't contradict themselves. I don't necessarily agree because you know me. I'm like down with astrology. I hate it. But like we're having this conversation too. True. But again, that, and those so are con- highly contradictory. And like, but I guess but to it a certain make, extent, it doesn't make astrology true. It just means that you're okay with that. With that, <laughs> what do I call it? Falsehood. Or I don't know that it's a falsehood because it makes you feel good as a. It gives you a meaning or purpose and fall. Uh, you put words into my mouth. No, to me, astrology is... It fills a hole. Astrology does what that book you're reading about archetypes does for you. Astrology is a set of archetypes that helps you understand the the world around you. Third-person epistemics. Astrology serves as uh, archetypical narrative to help understand the world around you in the way that Jungian psychology does in a Mm. way that myth and religion does for people it serves the same purpose it creates archetypical narrative to help explain the world around you which is what third person epistemics is except it's it's, just not sciencey which you don't like about it and it's literally false it might be so it's metaphoric oh this is actually perfect so it's metaphorically but you so your argument metaphorically true but literally false is what i would say astrology is as is religion yes as is mythology. Yes. As is emotion. Hmm. Like emotions are literal things that you can measure in the brain, but are they metaphorically? I mean, they're more like subjective or intersubjective for people. Yeah, intersubjectivity. Yeah, sure. 
we all have them. They all mean relatively the same thing depending on the population. Mm, depending on the population. Yeah, so intersubjective bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I can agree with that. So third-person epistemics doesn't necessarily... So how you view the world, your ways of knowing the world can be based on things that aren't literally true. That's fine. But it also, like, if I ask somebody, well, how do you know that within, like, how do you know astrology is true? And then the next words that come out of their mouth, now they're in the science domain or in the logic domain. Okay. The philosophy domain. Okay. So that's fine that you can have it. I mean, it's exactly like, it's just, I mean, just like religion, you're fine to have yours, but now you're making me do it. Mm. So you can find to be subjective. You can you can get that. You can feel that uh, emotional. That's where you get into second person uh, epistemics because perfect, perfect you segue. might view the world through a lens that I don't view the world. But I and so that doesn't mean that you're wrong or that I'm right. It means that I just need to understand the lens with which you view the world. Yes. In order to but we do understand need common, each other. We do need common truth telling mechanisms so that we can. Um, well, a thousand things cohabitate. Um, I think that's, I mean, that's one, to have a successful democracy, you have to have base level truth telling mechanisms that everyone shares so that mm-hmm. we can all even agree on what we're trying to do. So Yeah, I mean, we, I don't think that's necessarily so you, yeah, they're necessary not mutually for exclusive. democracy. It's a, I think it's probably necessary for society. Society. In general, yeah. Yeah. That's not tyrannical. A quote unquote civilization. Mm-hmm. Civilized society, I mean, whatever that means, organized. I want, I, or I mean, I meant specifically for a democracy because the uh, democracy needs a population that that's going to vote. Well, that way, that will vote yeah. and needs to uh, needs to agree and needs to to one form or another and needs to have uh, needs to be informed about a number of things and able to make informed decisions about their government or else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because people are supposed to rule over their government. Right. And if they don't, then something else will, or mm-hmm. else the government rule over the people, and you don't want that. Or if the people don't rule over the government, and then the government rules over the market, then everything's going to crash just like it is. Like, the market rules over the government right now, right. In, in a way, in, in a shape or form, like uh, with lobbying and, like, Citizens totally. United and stuff. Yeah. That's something that shouldn't happen. The market shouldn't influence the government as such. Mm-hmm. And that's because we have a population of people that... Um, are not educated as such that we can properly rule over the government. And it's because, I mean, it creates a political class. It creates but a did we class. ever? Isn't that the point of why we had things like the Electoral College and a representative democracy, Congress and, or Congress, our House of Representatives and the Senate? Because the framers of the Constitution were like, well, the general population is not that smart. So, they so let's make sure. a good sure. system, but not a perfect system. Like, because there's checks and balances, one checks the other, checks the other, checks the other. Um, so those some of those things are failing and um, failing in some big ways. But the original, I mean, the original idea is, is good. It's a good idea, but despite its its failures, it's better than. I mean, like, I mean, what's the famous saying? That's democracy is the the best or the worst. Uh, oh damn it! I'm gonna fuck this up. <laughs> <laughs> um, the worst. The worst form of government, except for all the others. Mm. I don't I know mean, who said yeah. that, and it probably fucked it up. Democracy is tough because it's so fragile. 
like democracy is probably the has been the least effective form of government in the history of the world in the history of governments like it's the american democracy is the longest standing democracy ever that's true yeah that's true how long was rome democracy? not and rome was not a democracy um not uh athens yes not as long as the the united states no when they fall, 311, 314, am I right? Google it. Give it a goog. Um, and no, that was well over 300 years. And democracy, you can play with that word because not everybody had the right to vote, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think that when we're talking about democracy, like, we don't exist in a democracy. No, it's a republic. Yeah. But it's of weak. Sorts. It's easily overthrown and it's easily manipulated because of what we're talking about. Because when you give people freedom, you sacrifice some other things. Yeah, and you need an engaged public. And you need a public that believes in the voting system and the electoral system. How do you engage system. a public that has the freedom to not be engaged? Yeah, I mean, you need I mean, the, the opposite would be... Um, so that's why the U.S. tends to fail towards uh, chaos. And like something like China, which is a one-party system, t- tends... To, well, it's not failing yet, but it's actually succeeding towards order. And order makes things... Order always wins over chaos in that form because... Um, the Athenian it, democracy was about 140 years. Jesus, that's it? Yeah. Damn. I need to read into that. Um, I so, mean, this was like my... I literally... But that's, like, that's why China source. is so productive, and that's why they're building high-speed rails all across China and the world, and we can't even build one from San Francisco to L.A. Yeah. because it's going to cost, and the regulation... What was it like? I'm making this number up, but it was something like astronomical per mile is what it was going to cost, like like $100 million per mile. The to, California transistor, yeah, yeah. or the high-speed? Yeah, it was like Yikes. something like, what, where do you even come up with that number? Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? Um, so it just never happened. Yeah, it's like yeah. So, so like there's towards, yeah. epic downfalls in. So there's the good in the democratic the bad, system, but like then you have way more human rights, or what we call um, inalienable rights, mm. right? The like li- the right to liberty, um, life, liberty, life, liberty, liberty happiness, property, and property is really where it comes from. Locke, John Locke, we stole yeah. from. Yeah. Um, very good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I do know a thing or two about American history, you would hope. I'd see, John Locke wasn't American. No, but the, okay. yeah, the Constitution was gotcha. inspired gotcha. by Excuse Enlightenment me. values. Come on. Um, so, not that I know what he was. Uh, so, okay. So, <laughs> was he English? French? No, he wasn't French. He, would, he was way too smart to be British. French. John Locke. Come on, have you ever heard of more British name? And I am ashamed to say that my son's name, or at least middle name, will be L-O-C-K-E. Because of this guy? Uh, that and a book. Um, the Lies of Locke Lamora is one of my favorite fantasy books of all time. Did I tell you to read that yet? No. Oh, you would love it. It's fantastic. All right. I'll, one of my favorite books. I'm, I'm, I have another fantasy book in front of that. We'll get there eventually. Um, so second level epistemics um what how do we make that, sense of others how to make sense of others so it's a lot of uh if you were to teach it or to learn about it it's a lot of theory of mind um perspective taking perspective taking understanding There's what information yeah. another person's brain has that yours doesn't yeah like mary in the the colorless room if you've ever heard of it mm it's a thought experiment that, like imagine a, a woman it doesn't have to be a woman but she's in a colorless room 
everything is black and white. She lives there, but she learns everything there is to, she has a PhD knowledge of color and what color is, Mm. but she's never experienced color. And then one day she walks outside and she sees, she's let out. (laughs) <laughs> um, Yikes, of her this yeah, is it's not horrible good. welcome to thought experiments um and she finally sees red and she's able to say that's red as she but she like does she know what red is before that even though she knows everything about red or does she not know it until she experiences it or mm. is she even able to see like or uh identify so what, what it, how does that how is that second person it makes you think what it may be like to be something else like another good article uh, okay so second person epistemics doesn't necessarily have to do with understanding other people it's just understanding otherness otherness yes yes yeah. hmm. of, all, of all sorts there's also a paper that's really famous called uh, what it's like to be a bat in philosophy it does kind of the same thing um so it doesn't have to be other people it can be other things other kinds which is a good way to start and then yeah. you move down to humanness and then uh because that's really the hardest part about it. And then you get into like steel manning other people's arguments. And like a steel man is an opposite of a straw man. A straw man would be like if we we're arguing and you say, well, what, what's my argument? What am I talking about? Yeah. And I, a straw man would be like me literally putting it. It's like a scarecrow. Easily, something You're easily dressing up down. my argument. I'm dressing yeah. up your argument. I'm showing as something where the weakness bullshit. is. So yeah. Like, yeah. But a steel man would be you explain my argument back to me in actually a better way mm-hmm. than um, I, I put it in the, um, in the, in the first place. Which is a, is a great exercise, um, especially for students. You make them switch, like, okay, what are they saying? What what are you saying? And your grade depends on it, so you really yeah. have to dig in and try. I mean, that's, like, a classic thing that we do in, like, social studies education, which is we're going to have a debate. What side of the debate do you want to be on? And then you purposefully give the students the opposite. Yeah. Right? So they have to argue for something they don't actually believe in, but they have to do a good job because... Name all the ways Hitler was right. <laughs> that would never ever be. <laughs> There's no debate about that. Let's just let's just hold on a minute. There's no debate about that. We're we're we're. There's no debate. But he's an excellent painter. But we could debate other topics, like um, for example, last year when um, Trump was impeached for the first time, we had a, a a debate in my history class when we were learning about impeachment, the process of impeachment, and it was okay pro. Yes, he should be impeached, and no, he should not be impeached. And I put assigned students on either side, and knowing where they stood on opposite ends of the argument. And yeah, they had to make those arguments and use evidence and look at the transcripts of those phone calls and dig into to all of that and argue for the side they didn't believe in. That's sep- second-person epistemics. That's pretty high level for high school. Is it? I guess not. They're gonna think about it. They're 16 years old. Like you. you, I was a moron when I was 16. I'm a moron now. I think if you were 16 years old and I asked you to give me some evidence that argued against, that argued for something you don't believe in, you would have been able to do that. Yeah, but I was a. I mean, are were my students' arguments gonna hold up in the? In the Senate impeachment hearings, no. no okay. But they served a purpose they for can, they high can get school. An argument. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, can they analyze documents uh, and make critical mm. thinking points from so them? The, the second level epistemic is where you really get into um, uh, logical fallacies and uh, formal logic. And then you get into uh, the first level epistemics is noticing your own biases. 
noticing your own logical fallacies as you're making them. Um, what else? Um, some existentialism, really. So I would start in existentialism and kind of break them down as people. Like, what are you? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the way I would do it. Like, uh, basically tearing down things that they take for granted. Not take for granted, but things they assume that aren't really true. Like I talked about in my last podcast um, with Ryan. Uh, like, I always like to bring up, like, free will and the soul. Yeah. Because those are things that everybody believes are true intuitively. But really, when you dig into it, there's not a lot there. Or at least, that's my opinion. Um, so we'd start with like things like that or like solipsism or like hedonism, just kind of ways of thinking and kind of break them down, um, so that they're questioning their reality (laughs) and uh, like having almost like an existential crisis, then you can build them back up into, into your liking, which is, uh, I think a good exercise. So your argument is that first person epistemics is the most challenging one. Yeah, because... Because you have to really be able to point out your cognitive biases when they occur. And by nature of cognitive biases, they are things that we don't notice are occurring. Or don't want to. I mean, it's like, like if it was easy, then therapy would be like one session. Yeah. Hey, here's everything wrong with you. Great. I agree. But no, your your therapist has to dance around it for three months trying to get you to admit something. And most of the time you don't. Yeah. So that's what they're doing by asking the all these questions. The human brain is so defensive, isn't it? No. <laughs> like, it's we have so many protective mechanisms to shield the ego. Exactly. So we have to have mechanisms, mechanisms in place that correct for those defensive mechanisms. Mm-hmm. That do it in a way that's not going to just make you more defensive and turtle up. Yeah. Um, that's why. And I we, think that I think that when I'm just going to circle back to the safe spaces conversation. The call for safe spaces and the pushback on that, I think the pushback comes from we shouldn't need safe spaces because you should have a pretty solid understanding of first-person epistemics. Otherwise, we wouldn't need safe spaces, right? But it doesn't take into it, into account, that, that, that perspective on the pushback of safe spaces doesn't take into effect second- and third-person epistemics, which is one person... A given human in a space where they do not feel safe might have first-person epistemics and be able to understand what's going on in their own mind, but there are other people who don't have that, and so that makes that creates conflict. That creates a violent situation, not necessarily physically, but intellectually. Hmm. So I might be sitting here thinking like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, this guy is saying things and I am triggered by them, but like also... You know, da, 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 da. I could be having like a ep- first person epistemic moment. Be a failure of an But if you're not even close to being there with me, then it's still unsafe. But it, that would be a failure of the second person on my account and the failure of the first person on your account. Failure of the second person because I can't, I can't relate and I'm not trying to relate to where you're coming from. And a failure mm-hmm. of first person on your account because you can't notice your own. Well, no, I think I think you can, right? Like, well, like, just in that specific case. <laughs> Is this confusing yet? I'm just thinking that, like, just because I can recognize what's going on in my own mind and the biases or whatever might be happening, doesn't mean that it's okay that that's happening to me whatever that is, right? Maybe someone's using like a slur or using like really violent language or literally like um, 
harassing me. Yeah. Right? First person epistemics, I can be like, I, you know, I can, I can, I can have an awareness of how I'm feeling and why I'm reacting the way I'm reacting, but it doesn't mean that that person should be doing that. Or it doesn't, it doesn't apologize for that. But, sec- but second person would allow you to, okay, this prob- person probably is coming from this such and such background, believes such and such. So it gives you a, um, it lets you step back. Right. It lets you step back. So, so. And fuck him. Who cares what he thinks? <laughs> or her. But that shouldn't be happening in an educational space. Is oh, no, I'm no, no, of course. Yeah. So that's where we if need. That's, saying that's, racial so I'm, <laughs> that's why I'm saying like the need for safe spaces. But you go to school. The need for safe spaces is like, is, is calling for, I think if we're, if we are talking about epistemics, the, the call for safe spaces is actually a call for, uh, or a recognition of the lack of second, first, second, and third person epistemics, mm, a failure to any given extent for anybody. But I think that the pushback that you have coming from it, like the pushback on safe spaces, we shouldn't need safe spaces, focuses on the person who feels unsafe. And I think that that, like, you know, you're saying like, they should, like, it's, you know, they shouldn't feel unsafe. Or, you know, first person epistemics and second person epistemics would make it so that they don't feel unsafe or whatever. But I think that we need to like, re-examine like some of it but who, some of who's the con- at fault in this scenario right True, but some of the content in which they're trying to moderate moderate is just i mean to me it's almost like laughable it's like wait what what, what are you talking about it's 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 the orthodoxy again it's like i don't want to be made a fi- made to feel uncomfortable about my base beliefs so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna not allow you to talk or create a space in which you're not allowed to talk yeah I, i'm just so looking there's at a, this. there's a comfort level there too yeah <laughs> I, I tend to agree. I'm just looking at this note that I had from like something that the Stengel article wrote, questioning safe space. Uh, another article she had questioning safe spaces <laughs> about like learning is necessarily dangerous, right? That mm-hmm. that discomfort component to it. It doesn't have to be like dangerous, you know, like I'm going to jump off of a bridge or something dangerous, but dangerous to the comfort of the mind or the normalcy of the mind, right? So there is also this kind of need to displace fear with curiosity that feels safe. How can I displace or how can I shift the fear of what I'm afraid of? So am I, you know, what, what am I, what is the fear into what, into like curiosity that feels a little bit more safe? Yeah. I also forgot one thing in third person epistemics Mm. that I would have added is, um, uh, what is it called? Mimetics? Memetics. What's memetics? <laughs> Allow me to tell you. Um, memetics is um, actually based on the word meme, which we use a lot now. But it's okay. Then I probably know memetics. Go on. Yeah, it's so it's the literally just if you read Richard Dawkins, he's the famous biologist. He wrote the book The Selfish Gene in 1976. I don't know why I know that. Um, but the tenth chapter, wow. it's about how genes. Um, uh, evolution of organisms can actually be traced right down to the um, to the individual gene level. Mm-hmm. Not important for this conversation. Um, important in general. Uh, but in the tenth chapter, he he gives a parallel of how that's how uh, this is how ideas work in people too. So ideas um, try to survive just like genes do or just like organisms do so they go through um 
they use people as hosts almost they almost behave like viruses where mm-hmm. like an idea will enter my mind and if it's a good idea not good in the sense that it's true in the sense that it has adaptations um in which um will spread in my mind so it could be um let's say um it it could have many characteristics of what like uh depending on the person too or depending on like base human biology or i guess that would be psychology of why that this particular idea would spread uh really well like maybe it's it it sounds really good or maybe like a lot of things well, let's take an idea god okay god is male <laughs> what's it i'm just making i'm just make, coming up Perfect. with a, a common okay. idea or just okay <laughs> Got it. Okay, I'll take God in general, and then we can add his maleness to it. <laughs> okay, great, fine. Well, the okay. maleness to God is actually an archetype because uh, the uh, orderliness. Um, okay, but that's also an idea. Is an idea, and it's a meme that has been passed down for many generations exactly. in many cultures. Okay, so why is that a good idea? Although literally, probably false. It is metaphorically true because it spreads and it's a good idea. It's a good meme. It's a good mind virus, I guess. All, but that's not to say it's bad. Did you just call God a mind virus? All ideas are mind viruses. Not to, in their behavior, not in that they're bad. Did you just discriminate against viruses? (laughs) Okay, go on. Um, It's a good, uh, it's a good idea in that it's, it's uh, survival function will spread to many people. Like Christianity Mm -hmm. is well was i guess functioning as a good and spreadable idea because of its survival mechanism it spreads through many hosts. so you're making a parallel between this idea god being good because it it is going to spread and um it makes the host live, it makes the host it live longer and more easily and um, makes it spread more easily but it's also malleable because like uh like anything else or like any idea it has changed over time, mm-hmm. so it continually changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not going to change for the worse, so that it stops spreading. It's not going to be like God was a cockroach and he sold lollipops. Like you can make anything up. That makes it a worse idea. Right. So it's going to keep functioning and keep uh, self-correcting. Um, and people, so good people do ideas that. Ideas are ones that last a long time. Good, good in the sense that, like, an evolutionary sense, yes. Okay. Um, not in the sense that they may or may not be true. Because, like, evolutionary psychology says, like, good traits are ones that are survivally adaptive, that yes, enable the organism to survive. Season, yes, adaptive. That, that traits, biologically, that are good, quote-unquote, are ones that enable us to survive. But mm. So you're saying an idea is good if it's survivally adaptive, it enables us to survive, or it's good because it has been enabled to survive? Both. So it's going to, it's going to spread more easily if it's in the mind of a host that lives longer, right? Okay. You can spread it to more people. And also, I mean, yeah. it will use your, it's going to use your mind. Like when you, uh, an idea enters your mind, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to make sense of it to yourself, right? And better and better ways, and then you're going to tell people about it. I mean, that's what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean, evolutionary psychology makes the argument that culture is survivally adaptive. The per- the reason that we have culture, which is religion, which is language, which is cuisine, which is the way we dress and how we interact and literally everything about society, is that it's survivally adaptive. Mm-hmm. That those rules within the parameter of culture help us yes. carry on. Whether or not they're actually true. 
And in fact, totally. that, in fact, and that doesn't matter. Most of it is not true. And yeah, most like, of it. Like, why do why are we wearing what we're wearing? Like, who gives a shit? Well, I'm wearing. I mean, well, you could say that, but it is true. There is a function. Okay, there's yes, a function, like and cold. I need pants with like two two leg holes in them. Like, there's a function in humanity I mean, biology and to it. What about a kilt? That's a little. It's too cold outside. Not. I mean, people don't wear underwear in kilts. I bet your ancestors wore kilts. I'm from. You gotta have some Scottish in you. No, look at you. I don't think. What does that mean? <laughs> hair. Um, I, f- I think they're French Scottish. Um, no, no. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> no. I'm, okay. Um, <laughs> Mimetics. Okay, so why that pertains to third third level, person of third stomachs. third person of stomachs is God, because we, we went should so far off. We should. <laughs> we should know how I well it. And again, that entire theory is just a metaphor for how those things might work. It's not, I don't think it's literally true. Um, but it is, it's a good idea of how to think about ideas. And it makes um, ideas easier for you to, in my, how I explained it is, take on and off. You can take an idea off, you know, pick it out of your brain yeah. and put another one in it. Just yeah. like clothing, you should take them off yeah. and on. Um, so it makes it easier for you to... Um, it makes it easier for the second level epistemics taking somebody else's idea and putting it in your own your minds to, mm-hmm. to understand it. It makes that easier for that process to take place. Got it. So you're saying then the better under the the more solid we are with our third person epistemics, the more diversity in which we have the capacity to view the world and know the world, the better we will be able objectively. to the We're, better That's why the objectively is important. And what why is that important? Um, it's better to, or it's easier, if it's easier to view the world objectively, then it's easier to take your things that may be subjective um, and put them on hold when they're on, like ideas that may Give be subjective. Give me an example of a way to view the world objectively and subjectively. You can take astrology out of your mind and view the world from uh, okay. a Christian. So you're just basically saying like the way that, so third person epistemics being the way that I view the world personally for me versus the way that one may view the world. Yeah. And okay. it can't be relative. Yeah. Okay. So my the, the deeper my understanding of third-person epistemics enables me to have a deeper understanding of second-person epistemics because it means that I have a broader awareness and a greater diversity of the different ways in which one might view the world. And so if I encounter somebody who think, views the world different than me, I have a greater capacity to engage with that person's mind that has different information than mine. Bravo. And then even further... Once I have a better understanding of the capacity and ideas in someone else's mind, I can I can then apply it to myself, depending on my level of narcissism and ego, egoism. Yeah. Oof. Which is why I think, especially in first-person epistemics, if you are a person who wants to explore that, therapy is always a good idea. I'm not advocating legally for psychedelic use, but if you are, therapy with psychedelics is a great way because it literally blows those doors open. It makes you, uh, like more empathetic, more willing to, more, more it, bl- it increases your openness and destroys your ego, right? Which is great for first person epistemics because if you have no ego, then all your biases disappear. Yeah, I mean, Most therapy is like the fast track is a fast track to first person epistemics. Like that's way, why you yeah. go. Yeah. I mean, in many cases, it's a way of admitting the hard others, truths and all the to others yeah. and all the others. Mm-hmm. But it's one of many tools that you can the hardest access thing to do, yeah. for that. Cause so can meditation and mindfulness. So can psychedelics. So can, um, 
exercise in some cases yeah. for some and people. it's and most importantly and that's why i think critical thinking is uh is something that we can exercise and get better at is because when you get in when you're in therapy for a long time uh which i have <laughs> <laughs> can't you tell um then you get more comfortable being uncomfortable. You get more comfortable admitting hard truths to yourself. Yes. Stuff that you keep locked away in the in the uh, in the depths of your mind, in the back closet. So you're slowly unlocking that. Slowly looking at, slowly looking at things that that really hurt and are yeah. hard to admit. So you admit those hard truths, and then once the cool thing about it is, once you admit one or two or three or four, they actually get easier. So it's a skill that you develop, just like everything, just like all the other epistemics. Mm-hmm. So once you get used to that feeling, you actually uh, end up, just in my opinion, uh, you end up liking it. Like, I really like, uh, I don't like the process of being wrong. Like, if I'm wrong about something, I always go about it the same way. Like, no, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Like anybody else. And then, like, ten minutes later, I'm like, motherfucker, I was wrong. Or, you know. But then you're like, ah, I was wrong. You get used to it. Like, yes. It's a good thing. It's a good feeling. And you can get, it's something that's devastating for the ego. But over time... Um, with learning yeah. that's the great thing about learning is there is something in your brain that wasn't there before and yeah. that's like a gift Yeah, that's like magic Yeah, it's literally like poof there's something in my brain that wasn't there before but the only way in order for something that to, to exist in your brain that wasn't there before is through discomfort and is through that 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 painful process, yeah. whether it's learning something about yourself, learning something about the way that the world works, works in third-person epistemics, learning something about others or whatever. It is a process through discomfort. So, yeah, the reason that people start going to therapy and stop going to therapy is because it fucking sucks. Yeah, and that's why psychedelics like psilocybin are so, in large doses are so effective is because, one, it... it uh, to a certain extent, kills, depending on what you take, uh, kills the ego so that there's no one there to defend it. It's, it can't defend itself. Like, um, and then it also increases your openness and your ability to think laterally. Yeah, um, and let's talk about so, the neuroscience behind that because it's not just like this is what the psilocybin mushrooms do. It's, no, this is all subjective. <laughs> literally rewire your brain. So what therapy does is it teaches your brain, depending on the type of therapy you're in and depending on who your therapist is and depending on why you're there and blah, blah, blah. There's so much, there's so many like intricacies to this. But over time, what therapy does is it rewires your brain. It teaches your brain. It's metacognitive. It teaches your brain how to think differently or how to appraise differently, meaning how to experience things differently, right? So instead of taking things personally, I'm understanding second person epistemics that that, that they're, this isn't about me, it's about them, or whatever. So over time, it's slow, but you're rewiring your brain. You have neural connections that make you think in depressive tendencies, that make you think in tendencies that gear toward anxiety, right? And, and throughout that's therapy, hard to do, which is why psilocybin can be really so. What psilocybin does really is really hard for people to do because it basically packs all that therapying in into one six moment. hours. Yeah, yeah. And so what what's crazy about psilocybins and like there's there's there there's so much cool research on this, but also not enough. Not enough is that it can fundamentally rewire those neural connections that have been formed over century, <laughs> decades, Inc- not centuries. Increase and rewire. It can, I believe, grow, at least during, but and I think after, too, some, some, yeah. in some way. Or yeah, totally. So it, it, can, it can rewire and strengthen neural connections um, in really positive, healthy ways. It can also do the opposite, right? Like if you have a bad trip, so like... <laughs> I've had three... That's a thing. I haven't, like, 
you have, you're much more experienced than me in this. But and, and I don't have a <laughs> I don't have a job that I can be fired from by admitting that I take psychedelics. <laughs> no, but I mean, my a lot, not a lot. Part of my job is talking about these things. You know, mm, like okay. I teach psychology, that's right, and we that's talk right. about consciousness, and we talk about drugs, and we talk about psilocybin. So this is like all stuff I would talk about in my class. Um, encouraging psychedelic use. Mm. Not encouraging. Talking about the neuroscience behind it. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> We also talk about, like, sex and sexuality. Does that mean I'm encouraging it? No, I'm just like, you might. this is what happens. Um, I guess in either case, they're going to do it anyways. Um, <laughs> um, even in my, in my worst trips, of, I've had, uh, actually, um, both times. So, or in the good and the bad, I've, I've learned um quite a bit about myself like in uh especially in the bad like so as as a level of anxiety mm. like those i remember um i started on a on a trip and i w- i had done it uh, a handful of times before so i kind of was reckless with my set and setting and i was in a place um that started out good but as i began to a uh, trip and that that's the if you're ever going to have a bad trip if you're ever thinking about it the, if you're, if, if you're gonna have a bad it. time, it's gonna be on the come up. That first hour, if something goes wrong, that's that the rocket ship is blasting off. Mm. Once it hits orbit, you're fine. But once you're when you're blasting off, that's when if there's gonna be a mechanical failure and you're gonna explode, that's huh. it. That's it. That's when the bad stuff happens. I wonder why that would be. It's probably just because that's when like the majority of it is hitting your yeah circuits and whatever. So what happened to me is, or whatever energy is around you, whatever do you want to call energy, um, whatever energy is around you, you're going to take that with you. <laughs> I you can tell, I don't like that word. Um, but whatever energy Energy's is around you, thing. you're going to take it. We need to it. talk about energy after this. <laughs> Fine. Okay. Oh, next time. <laughs> yeah, next time. Um, but whatever, so whatever energy that is around you, if it's good or positive or negative, you're going to take that with you on your trip, at least for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so what happened with mine is some people are with who were not, tripping um began fighting like oh. not physically but uh engaging in like an argument and started like like crying fighting really oh, intense that's really intense and i lost my shit yeah i had to leave i had to go outside and i literally was doing like meditative exercise like okay you've been through worse you can get through this part yeah. you can get this through this part and then i got really anxious and anxiety was just overpowering to the point mm-hmm. where i wanted to where i needed to vomit um but then out of that chaos came um insight insight where um as it was kind of hitting me um i realized that my anxiety was almost like a and i've explained this before um and this may or may not be true but uh uh, my anxiety was a form of what i call like reverse narcissism where i was thinking i was thinking about how everybody was viewing me mm-hmm. in a negative sense oh this person probably thought i did this mm-hmm. this problem thought this person probably thought i was super weird i just got up out of the dinner table and didn't finish my meal i literally pushed it up right i said i pushed and pushed it uh, in front of me like away from me mm-hmm. and i just got up and said i gotta go mm-hmm. like oh, i'm worried about what this person thinks what this person thinks what this person mm-hmm. thinks so in the way that narcissism is the feeling that you are the center of the world like um Anxiety can be the uh, the same sense that you are the center of the world, but in a negative sense as opposed totally. to a positive sense. Where like how I explain it is, like narcissism would be like positive, positive, positively speaking, would they would say the the following sentence like, "Everybody's looking at me," mm-hmm. like in a like yes. Um, whereas somebody who suffers from anxiety would say, "Everybody's looking at me." Yeah. So it's the same center of the universe mm-hmm. as you. 
But so then as that psilocybin trip hits and your ego starts to dissolve, you just realize, oh, no one cares. There's like, so I'm many thing to be. It's true. There's no thing to be anxious at all. Although people do care. So like the, the anxiety is coming from a place of truth, but it's it's Hyper it's warped. Right. Yeah. So like. There's so many psychological concepts that you just like glossed over that I want to talk about. Excuse my gloss. So, no, but like in your experience, you're talking about so many like psychological concepts. So, cognitive psychologists, therapists look at anxiety. I think we've talked about this, but anxiety being a attention bias to threat. Mm -hmm. That's what anxiety is. An attention bias to threat. So there are threats in my environment. And I give more attention to certain ones, which may or may not actually be as threatening as I perceive them to be. But because I am attending to them more than others, I have anxiety, right? Hmm. So, um, for example, the fear of flying in an airplane, right? Like some people get anxious when they get on an airplane. Some people don't. Why? Why are some people anxious on an airplane and some people aren't? Because there's a threat in getting in an airplane, right? Like you could die. Yeah. Likelihood of death, very low. Possibility, yes. So why do I have a fear of flying? I have a detention bias on that threat, right? I am biasing that threat over all of the other realities of my life, right? I could also like choke on the peanut that they don't give anymore. Choke on the pretzel that Southwest gives out, whatever. So the threat that you were talking about in that moment is the threat of social ostracism ostracism or or non-acceptance, right? Mm. Which is a psychological need, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. One of those is that that um, need of belonging, that belongingness need. It's survivally adaptive to mm. human beings. We are tribal. We are we exist together. The reason that we have survived so long as a species and dominated all over all of the or survived past all the other hom- like hominid species that existed with along with us is partially because of that tribal nature that social component right like one of the ways that we know we can like induce a psychotic episode in people is social isolation Hmm. like complete social isolation like we go nuts so there is a threat there right that is a real threat social um not belonging in a social setting so so as somebody who was just isolated for COVID quarantine by myself for 10 days, I can tell you that's 100% accurate. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there have been studies about that. My mind. It's like when you look at, um, uh, like in prisons, right? When people go into like solitary confinement and stuff, it's horrific what happens to the mind it's torture. psychologically. It, it is torture. It really is. Um, so that social acceptance piece right like so many of us have social anxiety because of that attention bias on the threat there the reality is people don't give a shit as much as we think they do but they do give a shit Hmm. not as much as we think we do there's also a a, a phenomenon called the spotlight effect which it's just a fancy name for when we walk into a room we feel like people are looking at us a lot more than they actually are right or Whatever. So this that you were kind of alluding to the spotlight effect, right? Ever that that nobody cares versus nobody or everybody. What was that? What did you say? The narcissism. Everyone's looking at me versus everyone's looking at me. Mm-hmm. The reality is like everyone's probably not looking at you either way. You know what I mean? Like some people are, some people aren't. But that spotlight effect is that feeling that we we perceive more attention being on us than actually is mm-hmm. than in the, than reality. And so then again, we're attention biasing that threat right of whatever that is so like your trip and your like psilocybin your bad trip experience 
you had that you like came to the awareness that you were giving more attention. You were biasing the threat of social ostracism much more than probably was the reality for your given scenario. And thus achieved. What a dramatic way to get there. Level level five of the first person episode. <laughs> Congratulations. <man. laughs> it only took a panic attack. Yeah. I've had um, a lot of panic attacks. I haven't gotten there yet. So, <laughs> so uh, you aren't taking the right substances. Uh <laughs> Give me three books that everybody should read. Oh my gosh! How could you ask me you such a three. big question? Any genre? I don't care. Um, if you want, well, yeah, that's fine. The name of the wind. Which is part of the reason why we met. <laughs> it's the greatest work I think of fa- fiction I- ever. I wouldn't say part of the reason. I wouldn't say part of the reason we met. I would say the reason we met. Yeah, that's true. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. This is just your cat is attacking my feet right now. (laughs) Oh, son of a! Did she bite? Yes. Um, it's fine. (laughs) Okay. Oh, she got out. Okay, oh, other okay. books, other books, other books. Name of the Wind. Um, this is so by, like, this is so, like, influenced by what I've read recently. But um, I would say Name of the Wind, always, as a nonfiction. Um, Behave by Robert Sapolsky. Excellent. Which I read a number of years ago and have just recently reread that you and I have talked about. But I think that it's mandatory reading. If you want to understand the way that the human brain works and how it influences our behavior, which is really important for first, second, and third epistemics. Full circle. And Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Oh, good answer. I have that on my bookshelf. I haven't read it yet. Philosophical from a really cool perspective. It looks at philosophy from outside the human perspective. Which you don't get often. So I asked this in my last um, conversation, which is super cliche and corny, but I don't care because cause it's my fucking podcast. <laughs> What's the meaning of life? And I've been thinking about this a lot since the last time I asked it, so now I have an answer. Man, you really put me on the spot. Yeah, I know. What's the meaning of life? Why, Can I ask I clarifying questions? Fine. Human life? Yeah, don't give me a biological answer. <sighs> okay, so you're talking about like why are you you want me to tell you why are we here? Stop thinking. Just I've thought about this a lot though. So like I need to it's know. It's like getting up on a surfboard. You're doing too much. Just get up. Just stand up. <laughs> You're asking me a big question and expecting just a real quick off the top answer? That's not how I roll. Whatever. What's the meaning of life? Human life. The anticipation is killing me. I'm just trying to like put it all together in my brain. You're quite the showman. I showwoman. think. All right. This is where I'm at now. It'll likely change. But for what I've experienced and how I've come to understand the world 
and you can people. say love or something corny like that. I think the meaning of life is to understand connection. So it is a love answer. I don't know that that means love, but it could. But I think that where we are right now and where our world is and all of that, the meaning of life is to connect to ourselves, to the other, to the planet. First, second, third. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. How poetic. (laughs) I think that's true. I think that it's true. I think that where we fall in conflict is just coming from a lack of connection any argument can be solved if we actually understand what the other person's saying Mm. and i think that we often don't understand what other people are saying okay because of the cognitive biases we have or because we're just not speaking the same language Mm. so i'll give mine but while i'm doing it i want you to read an expert uh, excerpt 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 how many T's are in that? Six? One. Um, <laughs> E-X-C-E-R-P-T. Uh, uh, of your own writing, because I know you're a writer and you're fantastic, and I want you to share it with the world, and I know you're embarrassed, but I don't care. Um, I'll read it if you don't. I don't care, but I, I no, encourage writers should read their my, own writing. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm Okay, I didn't it. know whether you're embarrassed or not, but I'll, while you're doing that, I'll give you mine. Um, but it's actually pretty quick. Um, either do the red one one or the rose garden one. Just throwing it out there. Um, but mine, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think the meaning of life is, it's like a question in and of itself. It's, it's to find meaning. The meaning of life is to find meaning in your life, mm-hmm. which is kind a bad answer, but I, th- so I really circular. mean it. For a philosopher, super, I would expect more. The meaning of life is to find meaning in your life. It's subjective, but I which think, sucks because I hate subjective answers, but it's. I mean, honestly, it's, it is what my answer was like for me how do i find meaning it's through connection <laughs> that's the only way i know how to experience so the world yeah, yeah, yeah. right like in a conversation with you i don't i might not agree but i, I like truly want to connect and understand <laughs> so for me the way that i find meaning is through connection yeah i could have gave a cliche philosophy answer like the unexamined life is not worth living or some stupid like that i think therefore i am that's even more cliche (laughs) okay okay what were your suggestions for i just excerpts i could read a poem that you wrote about quarantine all right you're fine this one's called quarantine ready please it's quiet so quiet i want to scream just to fill up the empty space around me Something hurts, but I can't figure out where or what. But it hurts so much I want to disappear or something. I don't remember the before times, in the way you start to lose the faces of people you once knew, now dead. But I can't help the way my mind forgets. I think of thousands of strangers spending so much time in the painful quiet, too. Which of them have given into the screams and into the disappearing? Which of them have let go of the longing for before? The times when loneliness was over, only ever experienced in the company of others. The times where quiet didn't exist. I'm asking myself questions I never have. Like why am I crying for times I, when I didn't find joy in a daily walk? 
or fall blissfully into the ease of hugging a loved one? Why do I want to rage for the times when I could barely gasp for air, always inhaling for more, more? Leaving empty spaces empty is a skill I never knew. Beautiful. Thank you, Haley. Thank you.